Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to From the Kitchen Table. I'm Sean Duffy, along with my co-host for the podcast and partner in life, Rachel Campos Duffy. Thank you, Sean. It's so great to be around the kitchen table. And today we're going to have a conversation about the cruelty of so many policies on the left. And we're going to focus in on the policies, the open border policies, and also uh, student loan forgiveness. And we're going to be joined by Representative Kat Kamak to talk about what she has seen at the border. Um, um, But also we'll be joined by Newsweek Deputy Opinion Editor, Batya Ungar Sargon, a really interesting person, um, someone who who considers herself a liberal, um, but come comes around to understanding um, and explaining so much of the cruelty behind some of these policies. But we're going to start first with Representative Kat Kamak from Florida. Thanks for joining us at the kitchen table. Well, hello. It is so good to hear y'all's voices. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, you know, I love just even the story of how you got into Congress before we talk about the border, because I know that's something that's steaming with you. And it's something that we're really concerned about. And you and I have talked um, outside of this podcast about our concern for children. But I just for those of uh, those listeners who don't know your story, I'm sure they know who you are, but may not know the backstory of how you got into politics. It said, you know, you were actually your family, you grew up on a cattle ranch, your family lost that cattle ranch due to government policies. And you decided to fight back. And I just want to say, I haven't seen you lose that fighting spirit since you've been there. You, you just are, are so impressive and such a, a great voice um, for the GOP. Oh, thank you. I, I, I tell you, you know, politics was never in my plan. It wasn't my life's dream. I didn't grow up wanting to um, be a politician. I wanted to be a business owner. I actually um, you know, while kids were, you know, dreaming about being astronauts, I was running around with my little plastic purple briefcase because I wanted to be a CEO of the great big company. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I, I had dreams of that sort. And, um, you know, being the daughter of a single mom, you know, life wasn't always rosy or easy. You know, we struggled. And, um, but, but, you know, you're growing up in the country. And looking back now, I'm like, my gosh, I hope my kids get that same opportunity because growing up on a, you know, a small cow calf operation, you know, you've got chickens and you got dogs running around and you got horses and cows and you grow up rodeoing. And, you know, I barrel raced for gosh, 20 some odd years and, you know, showed chickens in 4-H and 
that was my life. And um, I had every intention on going to school. And I was, I was very lucky. I was the first in my family to go to college. And uh, last month of, of school, one month out from graduation, we got the news that we were losing everything. I'll never forget that day. It was like a, a bomb went off in our world. You know, getting the phone call that you've got 23 days to evict, it was wild. And I didn't understand at the time how it had happened or why it had happened. And as the months kind of trudged on, you know, um, we were homeless for, for a long time, you know, several months. And um, I started doing homework. I started, you know, listening to talk radio and I was Googling stories about, you know, all these people who are finding themselves out on the street, losing their homes. And I got angry. I mean, just a, a real fire in the belly, irate, angry, and found out that it was a government program. It was a big package that had been passed out of Washington, you know, over 1800 pages in legislative text that nobody in Washington had bothered to read. And uh, it was families like mine that were getting hurt the most because people in DC had not bothered to think about the consequences of their actions. And so I had a decision to make. I got offered a job to work on a campaign in Florida from a family friend. And I, I, told, I told him, I was like, I have no idea how to run a congressional campaign. He's like, ah, oh, you'll figure it out. And I literally Googled how to run a congressional campaign <laughs> <laughs> and moved across the country with nothing but clothes and some fishing gear because I was president of the Bass Fishing Club. I know my, my street cred is really, really taking a hit here today. <laughs> Uh, chickens and bass fishing. I know. Um, but yeah, our, up- our, lis- our listeners would love that. <laughs> well, then, then, then y'all are my kind of people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of how I got my start in politics. I mean, that, that was, it was that experience of, of really experiencing what big government can do to you and your family um, in a very real way that got me involved in politics. And it's been the driving force of getting government out of our lives in so many aspects, because um, whether it is taking away um, your home or, uh, you know, forcing you to do things that you don't want to do, like, you know, the vaccine debate that we've been having in this country. um, You know, these are all things that have very real consequences for everyday folks. And that's really what's been driving me ever since I've, I've been involved. Well, you're, it brings us right back to where we're at right now, because, you know, the, those Obama era policies that ended up leaving you homeless, we see big government policies coming out of Washington, D.C. that are affecting people at the border. And part of the reason we wanted you to come on, both Sean and I have been um, impressed with how I should say stark your language is, um, because it's not just hurting the people at the border, it's hurting little kids. And you have called um, Joe Biden the trafficker in chief. Yeah. I, you know, it's, um, I, I realize that that is a pretty bold statement, but when you've been to the border and you've held little kids who are just absolutely wrecked, um, and they have been gang raped to the point of their vocal cords giving out and they can't even tell you their name. Um, those are the experiences that stay with you. And to see firsthand how these children's lives are forever changed. They have become pawns in this 
uh, I don't want to say a game because it's not a game, but in this back and forth between the cartels and the Biden administration. And we know for a fact that the Biden administration is facilitating the trafficking of children through an open border policy. There is no way to explain it otherwise, because when you have an administration that refuses to enforce the laws on the books, halts construction of the border wall, uh, prohibits border agents from doing their job, uh, continues to build soft-sided facilities um, that are meant to house, process, and subsequently release people into the United States. When you stop the MPP policy, when you continually talk about uh, getting rid of the last tool in the toolbox, Title 42, the health directive that um, is allowing us to turn away some individuals, but not all, certainly. When you see all of these things, what else can you assume that the administration is trying to tell the world other than the Southwest border is open and it's a, a free for all, you know, come one, come all type situation. And we know that the cartels exploit the weakness of this administration. And quite frankly, when you see the whole cycle up close and personal, there's no other way to describe it as anything other than Biden has become the trafficker in chief because he's completing the trafficking cycle that the cartels are using to move people, women, children, drug runners. It's it's beyond smuggling because they're not just paying to get people across. You know, these people don't have six thousand, nine thousand dollars to get across the border. They have to put a down payment down and then they work off the rest. Yeah, they're like and indentured work- servants. Exactly. Like some of them are working, going to be working in hospitality industry, construction, but a lot of them will be working in the sex trade. And we know that to be a fact. We can go through story after story after story. But I mean, I think that it's really a point in time in our nation's history when we have to wake up and realize that one, border security is national security. And two, if we are to remain the most compassionate country in the world, don't you think we ought to have compassion towards those children that are being exploited at the border? Um, And it starts by securing it because the open border is allowing these people to be exploited. So it's pretty remarkable where we're at. You know, Kat, when I was um, in Congress in 2016, when Donald Trump was talking about securing the border, I, you know, I made several trips to the border Um, and it was, it was bad, uh, right? There was a lot of people coming across the Southern border. It, It wasn't, nearly what we see today um but just you know there, there was a full of folks coming in and it, it was outrageous and donald trump ran a race on securing the border and and frankly it was surprising that he won groups that that democrats and i think even republicans thought he would lose like hispanics because his language was so hard but i think the frustration you talked about this the frustration that people have across america with Washington DC, like you talked about your experience with, with your, uh, with your farm is like, are you people stupid? No one agrees that this is a good policy for America, that we would open up our borders, let anyone come in not vet them. Um, so as we saw, we were getting, you know, dozens of terrorists who have come across our border and that's only the ones that we've, uh, that, that the government has identified for us. There's gotaways that we don't know who they are. They could be terrorists as well. But the issue of the kids, you know, really gets me because um, I think whether you're a a Democrat or Republican, a conservative or a liberal, I do think there's a hard 
for the humanity of you know children especially coming across the border you know no no say on their own about you know were they, were, are they going to be sent or not sent it's their parents making that decision and the fact that there's a massive industry uh, around this sex trafficking right now um i wonder there's a whole conversation about racism i wonder does do democrats not care because these mostly are little brown children that are coming across and they can be sex trafficked mm-hmm. they can be thrown into they can be thrown into these uh, hostels where 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 men take advantage of them because i wonder if there were european kids coming over that there would be a different response but because they're from central america or south america they can be sex trafficked they're pieces of meat that they don't seem to care about the lives of of human beings that are being absolutely destroyed i was a prosecutor when you're se- someone is sexually assaulted it is not a momentary event it is a lifetime event for someone who is sexually assaulted they'll be traumatized forever by what's happened to them when they're 8 10 14 years old i mean that's 100% i mean i i touched on it a little bit earlier the the 9 year old um on my very first border trip i was in the data processing facility and um there was and they still have it i've been back to the border several times and i go to the processing facility they 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 have this like playpen it's this this pretty big purple and pink and baby blue play pen where the really young unaccompanied children <clears throat> um are at i'm surprised and, they let you in cat to uh, be honest i don't take no for an answer very for well you. <laughs> um and and you know i actually um have have had to talk my way into into these places sometimes but um i've been able to really build relationships with some of the agents down there and they know at this point they're like listen this is we're told that you're not supposed to film and you're not supposed to do this and so just don't do it and then what are they going to do if i do i mean yeah. it, it's it's kind of one of those situations but you know my very first trip i met um in this little playpen this 9-year-old girl and you could just tell this this little girl was a broken human being she was traumatized she was holding her knees um i i walked over to her and i you know just kind of got down eye to eye level with her and you know kept asking you know como te llamas and she was trying to open up you know i could tell she wanted me to to you know sit there with her and she finally tried to tell me her name an agent had to pull me aside and say you know she her vocal cords gave out screaming she was being gang raped she's 9 years old and i went back a second time uh, about a month later she was still there and she saw me and i mean i remember sitting there just holding her and just sobbing oh i'll cry right now i know just, oh, you know i mean and yeah. i don't Go care ahead. if you are white or black or brown i mean your heart just breaks for these kids that are being used as pawns and and i really you know shame on on aoc who was so yes. quick to go down and you know cry in an empty parking lot and claim that it was for the children where has she been mm-hmm. i've not seen her once and do you remember is- she went cat she went oh. to texas when the there was the uh, ele- the electrical problem remember the 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 power problem that they had with when there was yes. a storm she yes. went down for that because she thought it would embarrass abbot but you're right she cried outside of that facility um when she was running for office and claiming that she cared about the kids in the cages but she's been silent on this we interviewed um Bill Malugin last week 
He said, I asked him, what was the worst thing you saw? And he said he came upon Border Patrol agents helping a four and five year old who had just been sexually assaulted. And he was just uh, it was just horrible for him. And of course, you guys are talking about uh, you're talking about Bill's talking about the the rapes, because we know about 30 percent of women and, and girls who come across the border are sexually assaulted as they make this journey. About almost 20 percent of boys are as well. So boys are not. Um, you know, you know, removed from this, this danger as well. But there's also, which is why I was intrigued by, by your language of calling Joe Biden, the sex trafficker in chief, because here, I want to play this clip for you, because it's not just what happens as they cross the border, but our own complicity in handing them off to people that that will continue to to possibly uh, traffic them in sex. There's a young whistleblower. Her name is Sir Savannah Haran- Hernandez. I believe she works for the Post Millennial, and she was on with um, Fox News's Steve Hilton. And I want to play this clip of just how irresponsible um, our government. I guess they hand this off, Kat, and you can uh, explain this on the other side of the clip if you want. We contract all these NGOs. Um, who, by the way, are making tons of money, the Catholic Church, Lutheran um, services. Um, There's also a bunch of a whole myriad of Soros funded um, left wing NGOs. And they're the ones pressuring the board uh, the Biden administration to keep on with this policy. Everyone's making money. But look at how loosey goosey they are with the lives of these children. Can we play that clip? On top of these children being shipped throughout the United States, um, the employee that spoke to me provided me with an email that was basically stating that these children were being handed over to improperly identified adults, meaning that the paper that the Office of Refugee Resettlement is giving these employees, they're not making sure that the adult on the paper matches the adult they're handing this child over to, and it's absolutely insane. Kat? Oh, I mean, I'm not surprised. I hadn't heard that clip before, but I mean, the things that we've been able to uncover um, through the work that we do on Homeland Security Committee, I I discovered a pot of money, about $130 million, that is meant for um, home uh, people that are on the verge of homelessness, like single moms or families on the verge of homelessness, and veterans on the verge of homelessness. Something the, you can relate to, by the way, <laughs> yeah. having been something homeless that, yourself before. Something that hits home pretty quick. Yeah. Um, they, uh, we found out that the Biden administration was using those funds to actually pay for plane and bus tickets for illegals. And they were filtering it through uh, organizations like Catholic Charities and other NGOs that are at the border. And when I asked for receipts, radio silence. And they said, well, good luck getting receipts from Catholic Charities because we wanted to find out exactly where they were buying the tickets, You know, what was final destination on all these tickets that they were buying. And when I asked how they were processing all these under 18 and even those that are over 18, they said, well, as long as they say, you know, that they are who they are, then it's no problem. Many of them don't have IDs. So when they, and I've witnessed this firsthand, when they go into the airport at McAllen, Texas, for example, TSA has been given orders by the Biden administration that if, as long as they present paperwork that says, I am John Doe, and I'm John Doe because I say I am, I'm good to go. They don't have to present photo ID or government ID to get on the airplane, whereas you and I absolutely have yeah. to. I mean, it is so, as you said, loosey-goosey in terms of the verification. And when you talk about the kids and the placement of these kids, which then falls under health and human services, 
there's no way to track where these kids are going. I actually um, asked one of the agents as they were trying to figure out the, the, the next step for a lot of these under 18 kids. I said, so where, what happens to them? And they said, well, HHS is supposed to take them. And I said, okay, well then what does HHS do? And they said, well, the kids give the, the, the agent a number, the HHS employee a number. And as long as the person on the other line says, yeah, I'll take them, then they ship them out. Like who knows who's on the other line? There's no way to verify like, oh yeah, sure. That's my aunt. You know, that's my, that, 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 that kid's my niece. Give me a break. We know these kids are literally going to trafficking operations. It's absurd how this is being verified or lack thereof. Yeah, you know, I, so when uh, when I was in Congress as well, uh, Mario Diaz Bolart was working with Democrats trying to come up with legislation to, to to secure the border. And now we're we're thinking, you know, five seven years ago, but the border was nothing like it is today. Do you have any Democrats who share your concern about what's happening to the kids, about the number of people that are coming across our border, the impact it's going to have on low skill, lower income workers, um, the the homeland security risk of not knowing who's coming across those people who may want to do us harm? Are you seeing more Democrats even privately share your concern? Because I would think that with what's happening, good there's, there's good Democrats in the House that They'd go, you know what, we got, we got to fix this. this. This policy is insane. What are you hearing from Democrats? Uh, well, to your point, Sean, yeah, privately, I've had several Democrats who have expressed real frustration, dismay, and anger at, at what's going on. And they immediately follow it up with, but I can't say anything. That You know how, how Speaker Pelosi runs the House. I mean, it's, it's like watching a, a four-star general she she rules with um, everything she's got with an iron fist. It's it's remarkable to have colleagues on the other side of the aisle say, "I'm with you 100%. I agree. Oh my gosh, this is terrible." But you know, I'll 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 get primaried if I vote this way. Nancy will make sure that she dumps millions against me, and she'll primary me, or I'll lose my committee assignment. I mean, it's it's wow. even more infuriating to hear that. Um, I would almost rather them just not say anything at all, because at that point, you're putting politics over people's lives. And I think that that's where a lot of Americans are today. I spoke with several independents uh, at around the polls. It was election day here in Florida, primary day. And I had several independents who said, you know, I'm just so sick and tired of the hyper extremes. Like what happened to doing the right thing? You know, why can't we just do the right thing as Americans? You know, but Kat, but, but Kat, I think people are there, but, but you know, earlier in the, in, in, when we were having this discussion, Sean said, well, you think people would come together, you know, at least and agree on the kids. Right. But I saw throughout this pandemic, Democrats willing to hurt kids in order to push their agenda. Um, you see it all the time, whether it's the border or vaccines or masking or school closures. Um, I've seen, I've, I have been, shocked and now desensitized to what they are willing to do to children, to the most vulnerable, to the elderly, in order to push through their ideology and their power. So it's not surprising. And I think, Sean, you bring up such a great point. What would happen if these were Ukrainian little girls um, who were being, you know, raped by by Russians? Oh, boy, we'd get that story. But nobody gives a damn about these little kids 
um, that are coming across our southern border. And by the way, Kat, you also deserve a lot of credit for exposing um, the formula situation. Here we had moms in America, you know, struggling so hard, traveling from one grocery store to another, trying to find formula because we had a shortage. And you were the one who exposed um, piles of it lined up um, for, uh, sadly, for people who come across the border who have babies with them, but they shouldn't be there. They should have remained in Mexico. Um, They shouldn't have made this journey. Uh, Last word, we we got a couple minutes. I I wanted to give you a chance. Well, no, I mean, thank you for bringing that up, Rachel. It, it, that to me speaks volumes about the Biden war on women in America today, mm. because not only do we have the baby formula shortage, which was 100% avoidable, you know, completely uh, a result of a, a FDA that had no idea what they were doing. But now um, we're seeing, you know, the tampon shortage. We're seeing yes. every turn. Like if you are a young woman in Biden's America today, you are getting screwed at every turn. I, I hate to say it so bluntly, but you really are. Yeah. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking. And that baby formula issue continues to persist today. I've been on the phone with the manufacturers and they continue to run into roadblocks with red tape and bureaucrats in Washington. And I still continue to get... Um, photos and videos from agents who are having a hard time getting formula down the road at their local target in McAllen, Texas, but they're having to unload it out of the back of tractor trailers at the border for the processing facilities. And I just, I I, I was so angry when the White House came out and called me a liar. They said, your cat Camac is a liar. We don't, we are not hoarding baby formula at the border. 12 hours later, I was boots on the ground in the warehouses at the border, saw that exposing that and saying, you know, call me a liar again. And I'll really go around and show what's in all these boxes, like clothing, diapers, wipes, formula, specialty formula, and any parent out there who has had to deal with sensitive systems or allergy concerns, that formula is impossible to find today. So we have to keep exposing it and we've got to hold these folks accountable. Absolutely unbelievable that in America today, we've got moms that can't find formula, young women that can't find feminine products and we're all paying $5 at the pump. It's just absolutely crazy. You know, Kat, I want to thank, I want to thank you for being with us. Good politics are taking common sense issues. Yeah. I want to protect girls. Um, I don't care who they are, where they're coming from. They shouldn't be trafficked in sex. We should make sure that babies have formula. And women have feminine products. Common sense kitchen table issues. Actually it's down to the policy. basics, Kat. Basics. So I want I want I want to thank you for the work that you do. You are a uh, a great member, a great voice, um, who's unafraid to um, push back against anybody who's doing things that are hurting people. So thank you for joining us, not just with your kitchen table issues, but joining us at the kitchen table itself. So maybe yeah, we'll have a cup right. of coffee sometime in person, Kat. Thank you for being with us and. Keep up the fight. Hey, thank yes. you guys so much. You guys are amazing. Thanks, Congressman. You're you are a fighter. We love your bluntness. Um, keep it up. Um, we can't wait to have you back and, and, and another update. And hopefully, um, after Republicans win the majority and and you guys can maybe fix some of these things that um, we've all felt so helpless about. So thanks Absolutely. so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Have a good one. God bless you. Too. God thanks, bless Kate. you. We'll have more of this conversation after this. 
Since the 1970s, working-class Americans and U.S. investors who saved wealth in dollars have seen the dollar lose over 80% of its purchasing power. In contrast, investors who diversified their cash into gold saw gold appreciate over 5,000%. For Americans who invested $50,000 in gold when America left the gold standard in the 70s, their gold is worth more than $2.5 million today. While gold carries no guarantees and past performance does not equal future results, investors who do their own research will see that gold's performance over this time span is what gold has consistently done in the face of eroding paper currencies. For over 15 years, St. Joseph Partners has built its business with a singular focus on helping investors diversify their wealth and protect their families in physical gold and silver you hold in your hand. Don't let your hard-earned savings go unhedged. Call St. Joseph Partners or go to our joint website, kitchengold.net, not .com. That is kitchengold.net and protect your wealth. Um, so our next guest, Sean, is Batya Ungar Sargon, and she is the opinion editor at Newsweek. A lot of our listeners have probably seen her on Tucker Carlson. Um, she does a really great job of talking about that the real divided America is is not really about race. It's not even about political parties. It's about class. It's the elites versus the working class and the middle class. And she just wrote a fantastic article um, called The Cruelty of Biden's Border Policy. So we thought it'd be great to bring her in and kind of break that down for us a little bit. Um, Batya, thanks for joining us at the kitchen table. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a huge fan of you both. And it's just really an honor to be here with you and your listeners. Thank you. It's right back at you. We think you're fantastic. Tell us about your piece and, and really what the message is. And I hope people will go, by the way, and get it. It's called The Cruelty of Biden's Border Policy. Yeah, you know, I, I think that a lot of um, policies on the left that the left likes to tout as evidence of their compassion um, end up really being actually very, very cruel. And you see this on like a number of fronts, you know, student loan forgiveness is a big issue. That's one example of it. Defund the police, a lot of the environmental policy. This is stuff that makes affluent leftists feel really good about themselves. But at the other other side of all of these policies, you have working class Americans, hardworking class Americans who work harder every day than any of these people with their laptop jobs, paying the price for it very literally. And, you know, immigration is such a perfect example of this. You know, the, there was this uproar against President Trump's attempt to enforce the border, um, which was so ironic because, you know, as recently as 2015, Senator Bernie Sanders, a Democratic socialist, was talking about how open borders is a Koch brothers proposal, he called it, because that's what right wingers want. They want to bring in all these people to, to work for two, three dollars an hour and undercut the wages of working class Americans. This is something the Democrats used to know. And because their brain got scrambled by President Trump. They are now selling out their own working class and their own workers to import an entirely new working class from poorer countries. But the thing that I wrote about in the piece was this is not just cruel to our own workers. I mean, it is incredibly cruel, especially to black workers who have paid the highest price for mm. mass immigration. It's also cruel to the migrants themselves, because essentially the migrants got the message from President Biden that the, that the cartels got the border is open and we are incentivizing 
witnessing the most unbelievable cruelty. I mean, 609 deaths at the border, record numbers. A third of women who make the journey to America through the southern border admit to being sexually assaulted or raped, meaning, I mean, the number's obviously much higher, but a third admit to it. I mean, can you imagine the children, children drowning in the Rio Grande River and nobody is asking, how did these people get the idea that this was the right thing to do? I mean, we've made the incentive such that they are doing unbelievably dangerous things, often at the behest of these murderous, thuggish cartels. I mean, these cartels, the cruelty of these cartels, you would not even believe. And yet they are the people who are essentially patrolling and policing our borders because we're not doing it. Yeah. And cooked alive, by the way, in in these in these vehicles. I mean, the the 50 son, that's just one incident. I mean, can you imagine dying that way? It's got to be. Oh, Sean, go ahead. I'm sorry. It just, no, no, but, but I find it fascinating. You, you mentioned this, this used to be a Koch brother policy, a conservative policy, bring in cheap labor, which will allow us to drop, you know, our manufacturing prices and sell them globally. Um, and there was an understanding on the left that that doesn't help, you know, lower income, you know, blue collar, middle, middle income Americans. It doesn't help them at all. It actually helps the wealthy. And Donald Trump, to your point, flipped this on its head. And now you have Democrats who are supporting these policies that the Koch brothers had once supported to let people in and drive down the wages of the very people that Democrats say they're trying to help. But I think what's fascinating here is that Democrats have now actually lost this this whole group of people that used to look to them to to fight for them because the policies don't match um, the the economics of middle-income, lower-income Americans. But it's interesting, they still try to sell that their ideas of open borders or their ideas of climate change policies are really good for people who can't afford the competition or can't afford the prices at the gas pump. Yeah, I mean they're 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 full of it as <laughs> as what we, and I'm saying this from the left, right? I'm coming at this from I'm a leftist and I just feel such disgust for what you just described, the ways in which, you know, the the Democrats have obviously decided that their base are overeducated coastal elites living in big cities, you know, who go to these fancy universities where they learn things like critical race theory, you know, critical wokeness, you know, malarkey, right? And come mm-hmm. out and then demand that we that working class Americans pay off their student loans for their, you know, their film studies degree or what have you, while they, you know, work at the New York Times and make a hundred $25,000 a year producing videos, you know, it's, it's just, I totally agree with you. I mean, the Democrats have, have completely redefined amongst themselves who their base is while still talking out of the other side of their mouth as though they're representing working class Black Americans, working class Hispanic Americans. They're doing nothing of the kind. The, the Democratic coalition now is made up of the very, very poor, the dependent poor, and the, and the top 10%, right? You know, we know that Wall Street, for example, gave more money to Joe Biden than to Donald Trump. First time they gave more money to a Democrat than to a Republican mm-hmm. in, in recent history, right? Um, you know, so it, the thing that they don't understand um, is that there's a deep tension between the needs of the working class and the needs of the very poor. In their mind, anybody who makes less than $100,000 a year should be living on welfare, right? And, and they're happy to pay for that. Pay, you know, give us higher taxes. We're happy to pay for that because they're so wealthy that they're not even going to notice it, right? They want the working class to live on their generosity. They don't understand that working class 
middle-class Americans. They don't want to live on handouts. They want good jobs that give them dignity, that they can raise a family and even have a mother stay at home maybe and raise the kids for when they're little, right? That's what they want. That's the American dream. Own a home, have a good job. That used to be something that both sides, by the way, believed in up through the 70s. And then both sides sort of turned on that, started outsourcing jobs, just like you said, Sean, you know, the offshoring of manufacturing, all of the millions and millions of good working class jobs that gave you solidly middle class lives. We just shipped those off to China to build up China's middle class. Um, and, and I just think that, that that's what they don't understand. They don't understand the value of autonomy that working class Americans have. They don't want to live on handouts. They don't want an expanded welfare state. They want good jobs that give them dignity. And they're honestly, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think that either side is offering that? Do you see like energy for that on the right to sort of make that once again, something that, you know, working class yeah. Americans can aspire to. Yeah. I mean, I see that it's interesting to me. It's you, by the way, I love your ability to articulate so many things that I think about all the time. And it, it, you're just so brilliant about it. I do see that on, on the Hispanic side. I, I've always felt mm. um, as a Hispanic yeah. American myself, that Hispanics were, are, are very practical, um, maybe because so many of them are more recent. Um, you know, immigrants to this country that I feel like they were, they, they were always more up for grabs. And you can see that happening at this very moment, you know, 60% of um, Hispanic Americans are Mexican Americans. And the Democrats used to have a stronger hold on them. They're losing that hold because of these policies that are hurting the working class and specifically hurting those along the border who live in these communities that are being damaged. What's fascinating to me about, yeah, is, is, is the African-American vote. Mm-hmm. They are clearly being hurt by these policies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when, when a, a low skilled Mexican-American or a Mexican comes across the border or Latin American or Central American, um, wherever they are, are coming from, uh, it, it hurts their wages. Um, so many of the policies that they have, you know, in the inner city with that are that are, you know, bringing up crime with these woke prosecutors. I mean, I see no one getting hurt more than African-Americans. And yet um, it seems like their numbers still hold very um, strong. I want, I want to read something to you because this is an African-American woman who was on um, MSNBC. She is the CEO of Democracy for America, clearly one of the elites within the African-American community. But here's what she said, instead of talking about what you're talking about, which are the, you know, day-to-day needs of, of and, 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 I, and I like what you said too about, you know, there's this divide between the working and middle class and the poor, but the, there are so many people in the poor who aspire to be in the middle class and they're not being, um, you know, uh, uh, their, their needs aren't being met by, by the Democrat party. But she was asked, um, this woman um, on MSNBC, she was being asked about, you know, this shift, like for a while inflation and how bad the economy was, you know, is the, is the top issue for Americans, but this African-American woman, the head of democracy for America, the CEO says, I think that the tide is turning on inflation being a major issue for folks. We saw a hole not long ago that said the threat to democracy is actually more of a concern that cost of than the cost of living for people right now. So that's the whole, a whole other idea that we need to be pushing as we go into this election against Republicans. And she then goes on to talk about women's rights, um, you know, abortion, um, and all these other, you know, threat to democracy, January 6th, um, and how their agenda is to swipe away the idea of inflation and the economy and what's hurting the the middle class, the poor, and the working class, and really push 
um, you know, these democracy and women's rights issues. Yeah, it's uh, it's just so it's such a great example of what um, I write about in my book, which is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And my book is about how the only it's about how the media has taken um, this posture where they're pushing a moral panic about race and gender to hide the class divide that so many on the left have yes. benefited from, right? They don't want to talk about class. They don't want to talk about the class divide. They don't want to talk about how their policies continue to immiserate the working class and the poor. So they talk instead endlessly about racism and sexism and now, you know, democracy and Trump and white supremacy. Because as long as they're talking about those things and making a moral panic around them, they don't have to talk about the ways in which they have benefited from the very things that have hurt most Americans, the average American. And this is such a perfect example of that. We know that for Black Americans, the number one issue is the economy, jobs, inflation, and crime. We know this from polling over and over. You will never hear this stuff on CNN. You will never read about this stuff at the New York Times. You'll only read about inflation when it's getting a little bit better, right? That's when suddenly the word starts to show up in liberal media. Um, that That is what, you know, Black Americans are just like everybody else. They have the same concerns as everybody else. They just want a fair shot at the American dream, which they really haven't had until now. You know, there are still barriers there. But instead of saying, hey, how can we make sure Black Americans have a fair shot at the American dream? The left has said the American dream is dead. America is an evil white supremacist state, right? Like they, they've they given up on the very thing that minority voters still strive towards and still want, and then pretend that they're representing them with this sort of despair vision, right? And, you know, we know, for example, from Pew, that only 6% of Americans identify identify as progressive. And, and the way that they define people as progressive is they ask them, do you believe that America's institutions are so deeply racist that they all have to be destroyed and rebuilt from the bottom up? So 90% of people who call themselves progressive said yes to that, right? Now, reading the mainstream media, you would think that that's 50% of Americans, right? That that's like, right, the whole Democratic Party believes that. No, it's just 6% of Americans. And just 6% of Black Americans believe that. Black Americans are very moderate. Two thirds of black Americans call themselves moderate or conservative. They are definitely not progressive. Barely a third of them call themselves liberal. So, right. The question is, why do you, are you not seeing a bigger um, you right. know, mass exodus like with Hispanic Americans? And I think it's because, you know, it's it's sad to say, but I think it's because Republicans sort of gave up on the community from an electoral mm. point of view because they felt like the Democrats just have a lock on this. And so what ended up happening was black Americans were taken for granted and abused by the Democrats, but also ignored by the Republicans. And what I want to see is Republicans going into those communities and saying, look, these people have created a situation where your child can't go out into the street without getting shot. They And the school that they're trying to get to is terrible. They can't learn how to read, right? We're going to show up and give you school choice and make these streets safe. So your kid is going to get a great education and they're not going to get shot on their way to getting it. I want to see the right picking this up, just like they're doing with Hispanic Americans saying, you know, you guys believe in the American dream. So we're we're going to become the party of the American dream. Like you really see a responsiveness there on the right to this new influx of, of Hispanic voters. And I really want to see that for the black community as well. So I, 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 I agree and disagree with you. So if you look at President Trump, I think he did make a concerted effort for he did, the yes. American vote. Yes, he, he did. Yeah. You know what, 
He funded he historically did. black colleges. He he tried. Yeah, he said, "Listen, yeah. you, you, criminal justice reform is big for the yes. community. I'm going to do that as well." Yeah. Um, which, by the way, I did not. I was a former prosecutor. I did not vote for that in the House. Just <laughs> on the record for that. Um, and you guys can all, everyone can disagree with me on it, but I had my reasons. But uh, to your point, you do have to show up. And if you don't show up in a community as a Republican and say, "This is what I'm doing," you might not agree with everything, but I care about your family. I care about your school. I care about inflation. I care about your upward mobility. Um, I care about those things, and I'm going to fight for those things for you. If you don't show up and give that message, they're not going to vote for you. Yeah, that's really simple. And Republicans don't show up. But uh, here's that, that's that's my comment. Here's my question for you. I find it fascinating. Wait, 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 like, wait, 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 Sean. Okay, but wait, Sean. Okay. But, but wait, Sean. I, I have to because. <laughs> I, Go ahead. I, this is so interesting to me because I disagree with both of you in this. So whoa, I think whoa, whoa, that whoa. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. So here's the deal. I don't think the GOP does a good job of reaching out to either of those groups. What I think happens is I, I can't understand why the why the African-American vote hasn't turned on the Demo on the Democrat Party more. I don't understand if it's like, um, you know, Dan Bongino last week on our show was saying that people just get hopeless and they embrace the suck is what he calls it. I don't know if that's <laughs> happened um, to the black community on the Hispanic side. I think Hispanics literally said, uh, you know, this, th th especially with the trans stuff and the school stuff, they just said, you know what? I, I can't relate to these people anymore. I think it was a movement. It was an organic movement within the Hispanic party to say, we don't want to be represented by these whack jobs anymore. And I don't know if that's because they're newer um, to the country or they're maybe more religious or they don't have some sort of, you know, ties to the party that are as deep and entrenched as the, as the, as the Democrats, if less of them are on welfare. I don't know what the answer is, but I don't think it's big. I don't think the Hispanic movement has anything to do with the with the GOP. It has a hell of a lot more to do with how awful the Democrats have been and how the and, and how maybe the Hispanics just said we've had enough. Um, well, well I, I, I think go, go, all, go the, all of those issues are, are, are relevant. I mean, from Hispanic working class Hispanic people that I've spoken to and interviewed, um, I, I do think, you know, back to Sean's point, I mean, pr pr at the end of President Trump's first term, I think they looked at their wallets. I think they looked at the streets. I think they looked at the border. And they thought, you know what, things are better. And and I, I you know, that that was true at the time. And so I, I do think that there is a little bit of sort of, um, a, you know, Trump's legacy there. Um, and, and as well as, you know, he he did get 20 percent of, of black men voting for him, which is a was a historic number and a huge wow. shock. And, you know, of course, you know, the New York sure. Times had to had to run op eds saying, look, even, you know, black men can become the handmaidens of white supremacy was how they put it <laughs> in their classic, <laughs> disgusting way. But I'm sorry, Sean, what were you going to say? Well, uh, so here's I, I, I found it fascinating that you're like, I'm a liberal. Right. But and I'm a conservative and I'm you're not going to get me to be a liberal and I'm not going to get you to be a conservative. But we have this massive middle ground yeah, with a yeah. traditional liberal and conservatism to say what we do agree on is I want America to be great. Yeah, I want us to have a great economy. I want people to have upward mobility. There's a lot of issues we could fight about. Because the woke center of of the leftist movement has gone so far, now we don't fight about those things we used to fight about. We come back and join hands and say, no, 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 we're all fighting to go. How do we how do we stop our our, our elites from selling out our country to China? 
why don't business men and women any longer say, you know what, I wear an American lapel pin. I'm not going to sell my country out for a profit or my employees out for a profit who helped me build this company. I'm not going to move to China to make a few more dollars because I care about America. We don't have that any longer. And that's why I think the traditional liberal and the traditional conservative have kind of come together and said, you know what, we we have far more in common as Americans Mm -hmm. than what divides us on these traditional labels that we can put on those two issues. Um, And I find that which is which is why I think you're fascinating and why I think you've struck a chord with conservatives as a very honest liberal who's like, I'm a traditional liberal. And (laughs) I agree with so many of the things you guys are talking about, because these are basic American issues. Am I wrong? No, I totally agree with you. Um, if you look at the um, the breakdown of the sort of the American people, so you know about a third of Americans are socially liberal and and economically liberal, meaning they want actually the kind of economic stuff that Trump did, which was extremely liberal, right? Very protectionist yeah. in nature, right? Yeah, upset a lot of people yeah. in his own party. But I thought yeah. that stuff was great. I mean, he did a lot of stuff that Sanders was running on in 2015, right? Getting yes. rid of NAFTA, trade war with China, tariffs, right? All this stuff that I. I think is great, right? So you you have a lot. Wait, you know, wait, 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 but, but, yeah. but, let, let me yeah. interrupt you. I was I was one who was like, tariffs are bad. It's right. right. <laughs> and with Trump, I'm like, I really had to sit and think about what he was saying. And I'm like, and it maybe was Trump had to be the messenger for me. But I was like, you know what? He's actually right. When we're getting taken advantage of, and it's not fair trade, um, so it's not free trade. What the hell are we doing? I thought he was spot on, and I came over to the maybe you want to call it the Bernie Sanders position to go, we should have policies in place to protect our workers when people aren't fair um, in, in, our, in, our, um, in our trade with one another. You're, you're absolutely right. And you saw conservatives, again, embrace this idea of liberal ideas that Donald Trump brought to the party. Right. So if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer actually cared about working class Americans, they would have taken one look at that and said, my God, he's turning the Republicans into leftists on economic policy. We need to join hands because this guy will give us everything we've ever wanted. Instead, what they did was they elevated Liz Cheney. And I think that that is so interesting because what Trump represented was the ignored 25 percent of Americans who are socially conservative, but economically liberal. So they're working class, they're religious, they don't believe in this trans stuff, they don't believe in this woke stuff. They believe in Dr. King's vision, right? You know, equality, dignity for every American, and they're economically liberal. They think that, you know, like you were saying earlier, Sean, free market principles have sold out the working class and enough is enough. We're not taking this trickle down nonsense anymore. That, That to me is what Trump represented. It is a really important part of American life that had been erased by both sides of the political spectrum. And what you saw is a a huge shift among Republicans towards suddenly recognizing and respecting these these voters because they couldn't ignore them anymore. And meanwhile, what happened on the left was they leaned even further in to the the totally insane woke nonsense that like even their own voters are totally alienated by. And then elevated people like Liz Cheney who represented the old model of being a Republican, (laughs) the free market stuff where you're socially conservative and economically conservative that just has no real constituency anymore. and the war wing of the part. I mean, like, totally, by the way, totally. I mean, the, the I mean, a, a lot of us, I, I'm one of those who was like, totally bought everything that the Bushes were selling mm-hmm. in the Iraq war and, and the Cheney's. And I felt duped. And I was so relieved when Trump came along it, but might've been one of the, my primary issue was that he was saying out loud what we were all feeling. We were all embarrassed for having um, believed and helped support and promote 
all these policies and we were lied to. We found out, uh, you know, that, you know, this whole thing about, you know, weapons of mass destruction, we were lied to. We destroyed the Middle East and we were embarrassed to have been part of it. And then came Donald Trump. Did you know that every major diaper company either financially or vocally supports abortion? If that appalls you and you're looking to support a baby brand that aligns with your pro-life, pro-family views, then every life is your solution. Every Life firmly believes that regardless of where someone is from, what they look like, or whether they were planned or unplanned, every baby is a miracle from God worthy of love, protection, and celebration. Every Life offers high-performing, supremely soft, premium diapers and wipes delivered right to your doorstep. Their diapers are crafted without fragrances, dyes, lotions, latex, parabens, or phthalates. And you can feel good knowing that every purchase with Every Life contributes to changing lives through their support of pro-life organizations and pregnancy resource centers. Every Life is not just changing diapers, they're changing lives. Visit everylife.com to learn more. That's everylife.com. And don't forget to use promo code Duffy10 for an exclusive 10% discount on your first order today. Wait right there. We're going to have more of that conversation next. So let me ask you this because you, you bring up such an interesting point. So I can understand why Nancy Pelosi would say, you know, she just seems like soulless. Right. But Bernie Sanders was a true believer. And no. for whatever you thought, I mean, I, 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 I can't stand him. I think I, I hate what he, you know, he embraced Hugo Chavez and, and, the, and the destruction of the Venezuelan country and all this stuff I hate about him. But why didn't Bernie Sanders in the very least say, oh, my God, Donald Trump is is bringing all these conservatives over to the idea that, you know, we need fair trade. Now, maybe Bernie still wanted to go off in some communist direction. T- to be fair, I think Sean and I were like, we we want tariffs and 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 fair tra- and to get us to free trade. Right. Just, Hopefully that would bring but, but, us to free trade. But why didn't Bernie say, yeah, right on Donald Trump? Why did he go along with Nancy in the in the embracing of Liz Cheney? So I've spent a lot of time pondering that very question. Um, (laughs) While I was writing my book, I reached out to him many times to see if he would give me an interview, because obviously this is a big part of the story. I tell how, you know, Bernie Sanders in 2015, he did this 180 on immigration from saying, you know, open borders. That's a Koch brothers proposal in 2015 to being one of all, you know, almost every single one of the Democratic um, nominees. I mean, the Democratic primary um, campaigners raised their hands to, to say, including Bernie Sanders to say they would decriminalize illegal border crossing in 2020. So he did this 180 on immigration. He embraced all of this woke language. You know, Trump is the most xenophobic, racist, white supremacist, all of this, you know, just just this language, this rhetoric, this list of complaints about Trump while ignoring these like massive, massive lefty achievements of the Trump administration, like criminal justice reform and all the economic policy we're talking about. Why did that happen? And I think it was, you know, so the 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 more the less cynical answer i think specifically about immigration is that after you know trump's family separation policy there was no way to run against Trump and hit with the Trump derangement syndrome going on on the left without doing a 180 on immigration. But the more cynical part of me thinks, I think Bernie realized that 
that blacks were not going to vote for him because they're not actually socialists. They don't believe in that stuff. They believe in the American dream. They believe in capitalism. They just want a fair shot at it. It's actually a very entrepreneurial community. Uh, You know, so so he he, I think he realized he was not going to get the black vote. And so he decided instead to go after the Hispanic vote. And he made that very racist assumption about Hispanics, which is that that they're all pro immigrant, which they're not. And so he did this 180 on immigration and he actually managed to get, I think, about 20, 20% more of the Hispanic vote in 2020 than in um, 2018, 2015. Um, he was really targeting younger Hispanics yes, who, that's right. had, you know, who had been to college, right? So mm-hmm. then learned all this stuff about how you're supposed to believe in open borders or you're a racist, all this nonsense that their parents don't believe. So I think that, that you know, there's sort of multiple explanations for it. His, his, his campaign also, Hillary Clinton accused him of being sexist and racist, right? So yes. he was sort of, I think he was very hurt by that. And so he felt that he, you know, the way to combat that was to go woke, right? Which, and, and I, it was, just, but it's very sad. I mean, that question, Rachel, I think is such a good question because it really is a tragedy to me that he couldn't see that Trump was just taking a bulldozer to the neoliberal consensus and saying, I don't care, I only care about workers. And the idea that 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 Sanders, who spent his life advocating for workers, right. couldn't see that this was, and instead was obsessed with free college, which to me is so anathema to the needs of the working class. It is, it's very tragic. Yeah. You know, I, I look at, I, I think it's about power, mm. right? Trump, Trump was a threat to power. And I, I get this on both sides. I understand people want to have the White House. Each party wants the White House. And whatever you, I mean, people, I know pe- there's a lot of people on the left that don't like Donald Trump. They don't like his tweets. I don't love all of his tweets. Um, I don't like all the fights that he gets in. I, I do. I think he's hilarious. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Listen, I mean, I, I, but again, I don't. Should you go after? You might not like Colin Powell, but he died, and you don't go after Colin Powell. I, I agree mean, with sorry, you on that. That's... I totally agree with you. Yeah. On that. I do. And agree I, with I, you, you, you might you might not like John McCain, but when he's passed, I don't think you go. And I know you, you guys really disliked each other. You were political enemies, but those are. I don't. I don't like that part of what he had. I done. agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. Uh, however, the, the the results of the policies of, again, I'm going to fight for the American worker. I'm going to put America first. What's in our best interests? And if everyone does what's in their best interests, there's prosperity everywhere. And the result of that was profound. Um, and I think the, the, the results are what Bernie Sanders would also like, what Nancy Pelosi would also like. They mm-hmm. just couldn't stand that it came from Donald Trump kind of melding yeah. this traditional um, Republican ideology with some traditional Democrat ideology and getting some really remarkable results from it. So I think it comes back but to, to your power. point, Sean, 20 percent, uh, the, the poverty rate for blacks fell below 20 percent for the first time under yeah. Donald Trump. And, and but but again, it goes back to what we were saying, Sean, about you, which is that, you know, Trump delivered that economically. He gave he gave them all that money for historically black colleges so they didn't have to come back begging year after year for funding for that. I think he made it like a 10 or 15 years of funding. Um, he gave them criminal justice reform, but he got nothing from them. Um, Very really, I mean, response we talk about votes, some yeah. movement among black males, but really, he didn't get a lot of reward for a lot of effort. He didn't do anything in particular for Hispanics. But Hispanics and, and, responded to the the economy and the and the and the ability to open businesses and run them better, and so they they voted for him in, in bigger numbers without any think, specific I, pandering. And Rachel, I think the message of that is that that uh, a future candidate will look at all the effort that Donald Trump did put in to try to say, hey, can we to, listen? I'm, I'm African Americans. I am your home. Come and vote for me. I'm working for you. And he got very little back from the from the voter. 
would tell a future um, presidential candidate to go, listen, I can't win that vote. I'm going to go, I'm going to try to win the Hispanic go vote. I'm going to try Hispanics. to do, yeah, I think that's the, that's the message of the 2020 election. Yeah. And um, they're the, and by the way, they're the ones having babies. You and I have nine, but you know, lots of Hispanics are still having lots of babies. <laughs> the black, the black rate, uh, you know, it, it, birth rate is very low. So, I mean, if you're looking to the future, but, it's just a practical thing. But yeah, I want to, you, you, you mentioned the student loan issue uh, and obviously uh, President Biden is thinking about by the time this uh, podcast drops, he might've already done it, is thinking about um, eradicating $10,000 of student loan debt and debt that's held by the government, uh, not debt that's held privately, like with a, a Sally May or someone else. What's your take on that? Good policy, bad policy. What do you believe? Oh, God, it just makes me see red. These people, these podcasters sitting at home, you know, like looking their chops, acting like, you know, their sort of, you know, gender studies degree loans being paid off by working class Americans is some sort of social justice initiative. It really, really exposes the the emptiness of all of that rhetoric. It's so disgusting to me. And we have actually an amazing op-ed at Newsweek up right now by um, a, a railroad worker out of Houston, Charles Stallworth. And, and he argues that uh, student loan forgiveness is left wing trickle down economics. You know, the idea is like, let the rich keep their money. Right. And somehow everybody else will benefit. It's, it's so disgusting. And when you think about people who have medical debt, you know, people who just their lives were ruined because of, you know, an act of God, they got sick and now they're living with this debt, their home, mm. you know, people losing their homes over medical debt. And this is the thing that they're going for these overeducated elites who we know are on track to make millions more than working class Americans. We know that 60% of the debt is held by 40, per, the top 40% of Americans. You know, we know that these debts are disproportionately held by white, rich people, dentists, doctors, accountants, lawyers, corporate lawyers. So, so Biden's proposal, he, you know, the, they want it, you know, the, the squad is pushing always for like cancel total student debt, right? You know, Rashida Talib, for example, who has $70,000 in student loans, you know, pushing for total student debt, right? This woman who makes $187,000 a year wants working class Americans who are struggling to pay off her loans. Okay. He's not doing that at least, right? He's not doing what Elizabeth Warren wanted, which was $50,000. He's limited it to $10,000 for people making under $125,000 a year. I mean, it's better than what what they were proposing, but I still think it's disgusting. I mean, if you wanted to say for people making under $60,000, under $50,000 a year to give, you know, $10,000 off, that would make more sense because those are people who are sort of struggling at the same level with this burden, although I still wouldn't support it. Um, I just think it really exposes the, the who the Democrats are pandering to and catering to and how, how much, how little regard they have for the working class. Yeah. It's interesting when you were saying about all the, med you know, people who are working class, poor, have the you know, medical debt. What if their medical debt self-identified as student loan debt? Right. Would that count? <laughs> um, but it, it brings us to a, a great point, which is if they were going to eliminate debt, why, why do it for college? Why do it for college loan um, debts? Why not for, you know, people's you know, the kind of debt that normal working class poor people have. And I think this um, hopefully will wake people up a little bit. But in the end, it just sounds like it's it's actually going to help them win over some of the the young people um, that they probably have been losing um, over the last year with such bad policies. But I have to tell you, you are a fascinating guest. We're so oh. glad to have you on. <laughs> Thank you. Don't don't close. Oh, yeah. I got one more question. I, go, right no, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Go for it. 
so here, so I, I, this is what frustrates me on the student loan debt. So uh -huh. there's three there's three participants. There's the federal government who's mm -hmm. giving loans. There's the student who's taking loans, and there's the college or the university that's taking the mm. money, right? And so one, the student is stuck with the debt, maybe with a, a, a degree they should not have received that could never allow them a salary that could pay the debt back. Um, you have the taxpayer through the government that's on the hook, but you have the university, and we're, also, we're talking about the, 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 again, the student's gonna pay the debt back, maybe less $10,000. We're gonna have the taxpayer take on $10,000 of of uh, of debt on behalf of the student but the one that's untouched is the university who let that student go to their college go to their university take out all these loans and get a degree that doesn't allow them to pay the debt back or makes it hard for them to pay the debt back i don't understand if you want to change the cost structure of universities and colleges you have to put them on the hook for the prices that they charge and for and for students ability after graduation to actually pay the debt back and if you don't actually put them on the hook, there's going to be no cost restructuring at all in universities. So I make this in the last 40 years, since 1980, the cost of college when adjusted for inflation has gone up by 180%. If you look at automobiles over the course of um, the last 110 years since the Model T came out in, in, uh, in 1909, the cost hasn't gone up really at all. Um, a Model T, I believe, would cost $25,000 today. You can buy a car for $18,000 that's more reliable, has more features um, than anything the Model T ever had. But we've innovated, we've created, made things cheaper that we haven't done that with universities. And it only is a suck of money that we just keep funding is, I think, the real problem. I think you could argue the education's worse, Sean. I mean, like that yeah. I mean, people are yes. majoring in like they're taking classes on Madonna's impact on feminism <laughs> and all this crap. Right. I mean, although I love Madonna and I, I <laughs> do. impact feminism, I'm, I'm not, not sure I want the taxpayer to pay for that. <laughs> No, and we know that the the re the the that hundred and eighty percent increase. We know that the vast majority of that is going to administrators. You know, yes, yes. DEI right uh, initiatives, equity initiatives. Um, you know, just going to pay. You know, hundred and fifty, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year salaries to people um, to enforce wokeness at the administrative level. It's really, really, yes. really appalling. I, I totally agree with you, Sean. It's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you. It, I thought it was a good point too. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to make sure he got okay. that great point in. You can't but be Batya, the only listen. one with the good points, Batya. <laughs> yes. Listen, Batya, I, 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 I'm going to echo Rachel's point. I think you've, you've, you've been a fast, fascinating commentator, um, smart. <laughs> and again, that bring these ideas together that kind of get Americans to rally around. Again, concepts that are all American that help all Americans out, and I I commend you for that. And Thank and you. also being a liberal who likes to go on um, more conservative leaning programs, I think that's that, that's uh, that's wonderful, and I commend you for that. Before we go, where do what? Give me the name of your book again, and what am I going to learn? Why do I want to go buy your book? Give us a pitch. Uh, my book is called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy, and it's about how the media got so bad. It's about how the, the left-wing media went from being just liberal to being woke, and I argue that they're pushing a moral panic about race and gender to hide the fact that all of these journalists have undergone this status revolution over the last hundred years. You know, journalism used to be a working class trade, mm. you know, and today it's, you really have to come from the elites to become a journalist, especially in the 
liberal side. Um, and I argue that they've benefited from inequality in America. And to hide that, they talk endlessly about race, even though Americans have never been less racist. You know, thank God, thank God, finally, you know, the, the mainstream American view now is that every human, you know, God created us all equally and we all deserve to live with dignity and equality. That is now what everybody believes. And so they had to move the goalpost and create a new standard so that they could call all the other Americans racist and look down really at at, at President Trump's base. Um, so yeah, that's the book. It's about why when you turn on CNN or read the New York Times, you feel that they have so much contempt for you. It tells that story and explains how that happened and why. And um, yeah, that's the book. What a, what a great I topic. I, you know, I, what I love about about you in general is you give me a lot of hope. You know, sometimes when, when we do read the New York Times, when we do see the liberal media, um, we get this distorted view about this divide in America. And we, and sometimes, you know, us on the conservative cycle, maybe we should have this amicable divorce, you know, in our country where we just kind of go, let us do our thing. You guys go and have your liberal world. But you're a reminder that that vision, that New York Times vision of America is actually a distortion. I believe, I hope, I pray that there are a lot more Batyas and Sean Duffy's and Rachel's who agree um, and, and, and have so much more in common and, and that that's really where America's at and that we're, we are getting this distorted view. Um, you are fascinating. Um, we hope to have you back. I hope everyone gets your book and reads your articles because, um, and, and you're at Newsweek, correct? I am at Newsweek, yes. And so I, I just think you're, you're amazing. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Right back at you. God bless you both so much. I mean, what you're doing is so important and thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for joining us, Batya. Have a great day. You too. All right. Well, what a great conversation with Batya, Sean. I think that, um, again, she, she just brings me a lot of hope. I, I hope there are more of all of us that kind of have that common view, um, as we talked about there. I would. I was, she. I was going to object, and I didn't. Uh, she said, "You don't uh, agree with trickle down economics." Where I, again, I, I, I believe that an economy where you have growing industry, growing business, creates more jobs. Um, yeah. And again, we we don't have trickle trickle down economics in the sense that we have those who might offer jobs actually leaving to make more money elsewhere, which is a, which yes. is a huge problem. Um, but point. again, I, I I come back to this idea, Rachel, that there is. Um, a wide swath of America, again, liberals and conservatives, who again, as I mentioned to her, we could fight about a ton of different things, but there's something very fundamental and basic that's wrong in America right now, that the, the woke side of politics has made everyone get unified about who we should be and who we should fight for and what our future should look like. Um, and I, I, to your point, I take heart in that. I believe that's a really positive sign that you can have, again, which she's like, I'm a liberal. But this is insane. What we're, what's happening? Yeah. I, I think that you know I've been somewhat pessimistic on how we move forward, how do we come together, and she gave me a lot of um, a lot of, a lot more hope than I had that there's a lot more just Americans who believe that this is the wrong direction. Yeah, and also that Americans are not dumb. I mean, um, I think that you know she talked, she and Kat Kamak talked about the cruelty of these policies and how so much of this, as you said, Sean, is about power and ideology and putting people 
um, behind this ideology and this and this um, desire for party on the left side, and that people are waking up to it. You see it on the Hispanic side. Um, you, you see some inklings on the African American side. I don't. I don't see as much as I think um, it merits, um, given what's happened to the, the, their families and their communities um, under liberal leadership. It's it still perplexes me. Um, but you know, on the other hand. I do think that, you know, there's a lot of forces out there, um, powerful forces, media forces, trying to have us see it the liberal way. And people are seeing through all this. And I don't know if it was the pandemic, um, uh, what happened to Hispanic small businesses, as you know, Sean, that they are, you know, Hispanics are the most entrepreneurial demographic in the country. Um, and, and small businesses were hurt. And the big guys um, made more money over the pandemic. No one doubts what happened there. Um, mid, uh, you know, you, all the, uh, the, the, the kids from the poorest communities were the ones who were hurt the most by the pandemic um, policies around lockdowns and schools, middle-class, upper-middle-class rich kids um, moved to, to uh, private schools if they weren't already in them or they created pods because their moms were home and, or, or their parents had, you know, jobs that allowed them to work from home. But those who were essential workers, their kids were screwed. Um, and now we have millions of kids who are just not even showing up to school anymore. They just got out of the habit. Those aren't rich kids. Those are poor kids, probably mostly uh, African-American kids. So I am still perplexed that um, some elements of the Democrat Party have not woken up, but I am heartened that others, um, you know, in the population at large in America are waking up and seeing that we have a lot more in common um, in fighting this, the, these policies, this, this globalism and, and this, um, these power-hungry wokesters. I think I think you're right, and here's what I think is happening, Rachel. You have, um, you have the Hispanic community, and again, you make a good point. It's like it's it's this montage of people from different countries that make up the Hispanic community, and Mexicans are different than Cubans, that are different than Central Americans. I mean, it's a it's a different body uh, that um, with a lot of different viewpoints. It's that's a little different than um, I think other you know classes um, or groups in America. But I believe that there's this idea with this this base that still holds on to the Democrat Party and especially, you know, working class, you know, middle income, even lower income folks who believe the Democrats are fighting for them. And they trust that the policies that they're that they're implementing, like open borders, they believe that's going to be good for them. They believe that climate change and moving to green is going to be good for them. Right. They trust that what Democrats are doing is going to be positive for their families and for their lives. And I think when um, the, the, the policy, if implemented, God help us, it's going to destroy people's worth, uh, net worth, their opportunities, their jobs. It's going to destroy the dollar, what we're doing with all the spending yeah. and borrowing. And when people realize that what Democrats have done has, to your point, enriched the rich liberals, but impoverished them, you're going to have a revolution on your hands. You're going to have people rise up really angry at the elites um, who have so much and have taken so much from the rest of America. Um, and those things are really bad. You see throughout history, um, when those things happen, they're not pretty. But there will be a, a, an awakening at some point because people won't go down um, having had so much freedom, so much opportunity, so much wealth creation, 
um, even in the, the, the poor communities and in the middle class, because there's been you know, a, a steady upward mobility that's happened in our society. When that happens, um, this awakening happens, I think you're going to see really nasty things happen for these rich liberals who have pushed these gnarly policies on this country. So it might work yeah, today. Unless, 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 you know, the, the Republicans, you know, take over in the midterms, a Republican wins, you know, Trump or DeSantis or whoever in, in, in 2024, and we see the pendulum come back. Right. And that's, um, you know, that could happen before things get ugly. But I do think that if, if people nope. fall for the, if people fall for, oh, it's not inflation. This is about, you know, abortion and, and, and more race riots and all of that. We're going to see a tearing apart of this country even more than we have. I agree with you on that. So just uh, my view is it's hard to, to see a bright future for the GOP after maybe the 2024 uh, election. We might, the Republicans may win there, but when you have woke Wall Street, woke corporations, Woke social media, woke Hollywood, woke universities, woke young people. Okay, through yes, woke mm -hmm. and the social media drives these ideas into our kids that pollutes their minds. Um, it's pretty hard to see how people come back to this center of of um, kind of traditional conservative America. And so, if we are going to save it, and I say this every chance I get. We're going to save it in our homes. We can't let our kids go to these schools. We have to do everything we can to get our kids out of the indoctrination institutions uh, of K through 12. Um, make sure they're we in a need, place We need will... money attached to the kids and not the systems. I'm so tired of funding um, with our own tax dollars, whether it's at K through 12 or even at universities, that we continue to fund people who are indoctrinating our kids. It's interesting what yeah, I was talking about, um, you know, Bernie's. Um, you know, made some advancements with Hispanics, but he did it with um, woke Hispanic yep. young people. She was absolutely right about that. And he had a, he, uh, Bernie had this guy that was working on his behalf for the Hispanic vote. And they were the, they were the Latinx people. And the rest of Hispanics yep. were like, who are these people right now? We're the majority, those of us who think Latinx is BS, but the young people coming up are being fed this stuff. And so the future, you're right, doesn't look bright unless we change these systems. And, and you're right, it starts in the home, but we also have to stop funding um, with our tax dollars, these systems. And we have, that means we have to get involved politically um, to change that. That's right. Save America, save your family. That's how you do That's it. Right. Save your family, and you'll save America. If we all do that, um, at least we get like three quarters of our kids to come the right way, we are winning. Um, so that's all of our missions is save our own family. So Rachel, I listen, this was a fascinating podcast. Fascinating. Um, from, from Kat to Batia. Um, love the insight both of them brought from the border to, you know, woke liberalism in America. Absolutely. Listen, if you liked our podcast, you can rate, review, subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you for joining us at the kitchen table and for what was a longer conversation than normal today. We appreciate you uh, sticking with us and enjoying a cup of coffee at the kitchen table. Don't feel bad if the convo is good. Just keep it going. <laughs> That's right. All right, everybody. See you around the table next week. Bye-bye. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.